1: Tesla, that stock that everybody loves to talk about, up two-thirds of a percent in today's trading after earnings came out yesterday. Let's bring in somebody who says that maybe Tesla is, uh, you know, just a little bit, um, not cooking the books, (laughs) but well, we'll let him, we'll let him say it. Gordon Johnson is founder and CEO of GLJ Research. So Gordon, did Tesla or did Tesla not make a good profit?
2: Uh, put it this way, um, if you look at their core auto segment, Tesla lost a significant amount of money. So what Tesla does is every quarter, they recognize a certain level of regulatory credits. And these are 100% net income um, revenue that don't have cash tied to them. Um, uh, and this quarter, that number was $428 million. Their net income that they reported was 104. So excluding those credits, um, they lost a significant amount of money. And the CEO even said this on the call. He said our business is not based on or the assumption of continued credit recognition, because these are temporary numbers. But what's key here is if you look over the past 26 quarters, um, in only four of those quarters, if you take Tesla's net income, less regulatory uh, credit sold, has they, have they posted a profit, the most recent of which was 3Q19. But what's also interesting is their regulatory credit revenue jumped from about $100 million in Q4 to 354 in Q1 and $428 million in Q2, the reason that's significant is because that allowed them to report four straight quarters of profit, which it basically allows them or makes them el- eligible to be included in the S&P 500. Real quick, what, what's, what's important here is they're effectively recognizing revenue on credit cells they have not yet made to uh, Fiat Chrysler. Fiat Chrysler said they're going to buy credits essentially from Tesla of $1.1 billion over the next four years. In the first two quarters of this year alone, Tesla has recognized, we believe, $800 million of that $1.1 billion. So you can see they're significantly pulling forward revenues that they really haven't even sold yet to post the profit. We think it's not real. We think it's, uh, you know, it's artificial, and we think they're going to go back into severe losses in the back half this year.
0: So, Gordon, why does the market not care about that? The stock is up 283% year-to-date, up over 500% on a trailing 12-month basis. Um, why does the market not care? Well,
2: Tesla's completely detached from reality, but if we had to put it on one thing, we put it on this. Tesla's stock in March, essentially to February, March, fell from 950 dollars to 350 dollars when the market collapsed, right? And then in late March, the, key, the, the Federal Reserve announced QE Infinity. They essentially grew their balance sheet by three trillion dollars over a course of nine weeks, which is a full year's worth of tax revenues in the U.S. The question is, why are we even paying taxes, right? That money's just going into the stock market. And every speculative stock went to the moon. That's essentially the the key reason why we'd say um, uh, 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 people don't care. But we think they're going to be forced to care because Tesla reiterated its its guidance for 500,000 cars sold. So in 3Q, they're going to have to sell roughly 160,000 cars. We think they're going to fall far short of that. We think they're going to report a big loss in Q3. They guided, Tesla has guided, nobody's even talked about this on the sell side, but Tesla guided on their call last night They said our credit sales this year are going to be double last year. So if you take last year, multiply by two, subtract the first half of this year, they're guiding their credit sales down roughly 50% in the second half of this year. That's 100% gross margin revenue. It's going to fall 50%. So it's clear to us, we believe, right? Our opinion is they effectively – pulled in a bunch of credit revenue to show profit, to be included in the S&P 500, and they're going to go back to significant losses next quarter. So given where the valuation is, not only do they need to show tremendous growth, which we don't think they're going to do, um, their revenue has essentially peaked in the fourth quarter of 18, um, and so did their deliveries, um, but we also think they're going to go show severe net income losses and cash burn. We think that's going to push the stock down.
1: But all of the analysts can see that Tesla sold almost $800 million in regulatory credits, right? They're not hiding it or anything. So why are analysts even not bear it anymore?
2: Well, I'll give you this, right? The consensus estimate going into last night's earnings was a loss of $1.20, right? If Tesla would have lost money, that would have basically ended their ability to be included in the S&P 500. Since Musk basically, uh, there was an email he sent out to his employees that was leaked to to, to Newswire's, that they're close to profitability, the stock has been on fire. If the street estimate, like if analysts really thought they were going to lose money yesterday, they should have downgraded the stock sell because the stock would have imploded. I think there's select analysts that are complicit, um, and 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 essentially the pumps that are what Tesla consistently sees. Um, what I mean by that is like the street estimate for deliveries was seventy thousand before the end of the, the before they even reported the deliveries, Tesla came out themselves effectively via another leak so we're going to do. You know, we're going to be close to um, close to ninety thousand. So I think the street, in our view, this is our opinion. Some analysts are intentionally keeping their numbers low in order to keep the bar low, so Tesla can step over it.
0: All right, let's step away just a, a second from Tesla and the quarterly earnings. What is your call as to how the other big auto manufacturers will step up when they will step up in the EV market?
2: Right. So if you look at Tesla's revenue in Europe, um, their market share rather, it fell from 36% to roughly 15% from 4Q to, I'm I'm sorry, from 1Q of last year to today. If you look at their market share in the most important global EV market, which is Norway, and why we say that is because Norway is subsidized 50% of the cost of your electric car. So everybody who makes electric car sells in Norway. Tesla's share is down from 37% in the fourth quarter to roughly 5% as of today. The point is, just this year, E, the EU put in a rule that you had to basically sell a certain amount of electric cars at a car maker, or you were penalized. That wasn't the case last year. So in the markets where Tesla is facing competition now, they're, getting, uh, they're losing in a big way. The other thing I'll note is a lot of people say, well, tech, Tesla's the technology leader, right? They, they lead in batteries and they lead in autonomous driving. Let me, let me put some reality to that. Tesla does not make batteries, right? They do not make batteries. They buy them from Panasonic and CATL. Anybody can buy lithium-ion batteries from those vendors. And Tesla's R&D, right, if they're going to take over the battery space, their R&D spend was down almost 60% in Q2 year over year. Um, So they're not spending on R&D and they buy batteries from other people. So we think there's a misconception. And then lastly, in full self-drive, Navigant ranks them dead last.
0: Dead last. Gordon Johnson, thanks so much for joining us. A compelling bear case for what has been a rocket ship uh, of a stock. We'll see how it plays out. Certainly, you know, no sector has been hit harder, arguably, than U.S. airline business. They saw the traffic just plummet uh, with the pandemic, and it really hasn't rebounded that much, putting a lot of pressure on their balance sheets. Uh... And they are coming to market left, right, and center, uh, trying to raise capital, mortgaging, everything they can effectively. American Airlines is in the market right now. Let's talk about that deal. Molly Smith, corporate finance reporter for Bloomberg News. Molly, thanks so much for joining us here. Tell us about this $1.2 billion financing that American uh, is bringing to market.
3: Yeah, so we're probably going to see it sometime this quarter. Uh, American told us this morning when they reported earnings. And the idea is basically to mortgage the brand in uh, putting together a collateral package for this $1.2 billion debt financing that uh, Goldman is going to be working with American on. So that, some of that collateral includes the American Airlines trademark, also the AA.com website domain, as well as uh, key airline slots at um, LaGuardia and Reagan National Airport. So it's uh, really interesting on the IT side, at least. We haven't seen airlines yet putting up their trademark as collateral. So it really shows you how they're really doling out the kitchen sink to get some of the secured financing.
1: Yeah. How, if you were Goldman and you needed to, would you sort of uh, cash that in? (laughs) So it's a a bit reminiscent for me,
3: at least, of when Ford had to do something similar to put pretty much all of its assets in hock uh, to avoid filing for bankruptcy back in 2005. And including for Ford, the Blue Oval logo at the time. So it's uh, it's something that's not you know unique to companies in general, but uh, definitely have not seen this from the airlines so far in putting together these collateral packages.
0: Boy, as a young corporate finance banker at the Chase Manhattan Bank, I could not even imagine going to my credit committee saying, you know, we lend $1.2 billion <laughs> against uh, basically a logo. Um, yeah. But let's see if Goldman can get it done. So, Molly, give us a sense of the cash burn for this industry we, you know I just reported a story in the last hour Bloomberg News reported a story about you know how the airlines are adding fewer than they expected flights here because the pandemic is kind of surging in, in in key states here what's the cash burn like for a lot of these companies right now
3: it's improving but still negative uh, so I think they will take that as a general positive and it seems that that's what investors are taking as a positive as well that at least for american it, the cash burn was nearly 100 million dollars in April. Pretty much a third of that in June. So again, still negative but improving. And we saw that also with Southwest and United. So they are attributing that, of course, to you know some increased revenue and that it does seem that passengers are more willing to fly. But of course, uh, there's still a long way to go in terms of coming back from this travel shutdown.
1: It, it, it seems a little odd. So United putting up its loyalty points as collateral, you know, American now putting up basically, as Paul said, its logo. Why go to the trouble of all of this? Why not just give them some cash to tie them over? If you're going to back them, why not back them? I think
3: you know there needs to be some kind of security in these deals. And that, of course, if any of these companies could borrow through the unsecured market at, at a reasonable cost, they would probably consider that. But if you're already looking at double-digit yields on secured financing, then you can only imagine how much more painful or possibly not even, it doesn't even seem possible to do it in the unsecured market. So, and we've seen that investors are definitely assigning more weight to collateral too. I mean, remember United had tried to previously secure a bond sale with some of its old aircraft and investors were thinking that by the time the debt matures, that a lot of those aircraft wouldn't even be in flight. So, they then turned to the frequent flyer mile program. So it definitely is looking like the brands are getting more creative in terms of what they're putting up.
0: So, Molly, how's the market for some of these, I would call them quasi esoteric kind of uh, credit facilities here, or bond deals? Is a, you have to pay a huge premium to get money based upon, you know, with lateral, collateral being your logo?
3: Yes, I mean, we've seen a lot of other industries too, like Cruise Lines um, is another big one that have also been very creative in some of these secured financings. I believe it was Norwegian Cruise Line that put up some of its islands, believe it or not, uh, to borrow against and uh, still paid um, a 10% plus yield in that deal. Uh, Carnival has also done some similar financing uh, backed by its ships though. So we definitely see that there is a price to pay, but it seems like, the idea on the investor side is that these companies are going to be around in come 3 5 years whenever this debt matures and that's why they're willing to lend
1: i mean i can see the slots being worth something but has it ever okay. happened before that for example a new you know an entity goes bust it 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 didn't make good on its um, you know on its promise to sort of pawn back basically its logo and then some other entity arrives 20 years later and and takes the name or something i mean it could could it happen molly
3: uh, I guess theoretically it's possible, sure, though. I'm, I would think that whenever you are putting up these kinds of assets of collateral, that there's a huge vetting process to make sure that the appraisal value is there and that it is something legitimate to borrow against.
1: Yeah, it's so fascinating. It's mm-hmm. a great story. Molly, I hope everybody listening to us reads it. Molly Smith and American Air borrows against brand and $1.2 billion Goldman deal.
0: Let's take a look at the equity market, shall we? We had to, let's just put it into context. We came into this pandemic market, traded off about 34, 35 percent. We since retraced about 40 percent of that. Just extraordinary bounce back. The question is, as we head into and experience the second quarter earnings, where do we go from here? To help us answer that, we welcome Phil Orlando, chief equity market strategist and head of client portfolio management. At Federated Hermes, uh, they are uh, in uh, uh, $68 billion in equities under management. Phil, thanks so much for joining us once again here. We're in, I guess, the second week of earnings here. Any takeaways you've had so far?
4: Uh, the major takeaway is uh, how much better the earnings have come out versus what we were expecting so consensus going in was that earnings would be down about 44 45 percent year-over-year and that uh, you know 40 percent or so of companies would uh, would be withholding guidance now we're only about you know 15 or 20 percent of the way into the season so it's still early but of the companies that have reported, three-quarters of them uh, have beaten consensus earnings by about 14%, which is the strongest beat rate we've seen in, in 10 years. So again, uh, there's still plenty of track left, but at least the companies that have reported early uh, seem to be doing a lot better than, than we had thought.
1: How correct, quote unquote, are valuations right now, Phil? There's a lot of talk in recent days about the, you know, the top five companies in the S and P 500 accounting for a fifth of the index. But if you actually look into it, many of these companies, you know, have sold off.
4: So th- there's no question that technology has been an important driver of, of uh, this 50% rally we've seen from the bottom of the market on, on uh, March 23rd. And there's no question that within technology. Uh, the, the FANG stocks uh, Facebook, Apple, Amazon Netflix, Google uh, I'll throw Microsoft into that mix have have done the heavy lifting in terms of technology um, and, and this is a question that clients are asking a lot aren't are stocks expensive and on the basis of the reduction in earnings that we've put in place for this year uh, S&P earnings last year were $167. We initially had a $180 estimate for this year uh, at the beginning of the year, and then the pandemic hit. So we've taken our estimate down from $180 this year down to $125. So on the basis of where stocks are now, on the basis of $125 in earnings, you're you're trading at about 26 times earnings, which which is very high by, by any measure. But the pointed issue that a lot of people don't understand is that because you're in the depths of the recession, and, and this you know, second quarter, this is the, long, you know, the deepest recession we've seen in a really long time, it's inappropriate to value stocks off of the trough of the recession. You've got to look out to when you're going to see some normalization in the economy. And in our mind, that, that's calendar 22. It'll take us that long to get back to about $175 in earnings. So if you're looking at today's stock prices on the basis of, you know, normal earnings, quote, unquote, in in calendar 22, then you're looking at about an 18 multiple, which is perfectly fine, given the fact that Treasury yields are at 60 basis points and the core PCE inflation indicators at 1%. So it's really a, a function of your focus and your time horizon.
0: All right, Phil. So more near-term here. I guess we're starting to hear a lot of uh, conversation coming out of Washington, D.C. We're getting to the short strokes here of potential fourth round of fiscal stimulus. How key is it that uh, the stimulus package be you know as robust as maybe investors really hope for?
4: Well, I, I think it's critically important that there is a package. I think it's important that it it, it be done in a timely fashion which is to suggest the window between uh, this past Monday when Congress returned from vacation uh, to uh, August 10th when Congress goes back on vacation. We, we've got to have a package in that window. We, we can't have Congress go on vacation and not get anything done. Now, the question is, what's the size of the package and what are the details going to be? And, and uh, Speaker Pelosi and the Democrats in the House have talked about something in the $3 trillion neighborhood. Uh, I think the Republicans in the Senate have talked about something in the neighborhood of half that size. I'm less concerned about the size than I am in terms of the components. I think we need to make sure that. Uh, that there's more, uh, more money for hospitals and labs and, and testing. We've gotta make sure that, that cities and states are taken care of in terms of uh, maintaining their, their near-term payrolls. We've gotta make sure that businesses are taken care of. Uh, we've gotta make sure that there's some liability protection for companies that have done the right thing in terms of uh, keeping their customers and their employees safe. And, and we've gotta get some money into the hands of, of individuals. Uh, the The sticking point uh, up until now, and I don't know I'm not in the room, so I don't know what the discussions are is is how do we shift the incentivization from from staying home and and uh, getting money as opposed to uh, going back to work if your environment is safe and and getting back on the payroll and I think that 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 $600 extended unemployment bonus, which is set to expire at the end of this month, that, that seems to be the key discussion point that's going on.
1: Well, that's a long list of things that need to be in this package, and they have a week to do it, so I hope that uh, some of them do actually materialize. Our thanks, as always, to Phil Orlando for joining us from Federated Hermes Investors. It is time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. Today, we are looking at Ann Taylor's parent going bankrupt. The retailer's collapse has the potential to create more devastating ripple effects than were caused by other COVID-related washouts that preceded it. According to Bloomberg Opinions, Sarah Holzak, who joins us now. Sarah, why is Ann Taylor and its parent more of a systemically important retailer or group of retailers than, for example, a JCPenney or a Brooks Brothers or a J. J.Crew?
5: Yeah, so Athena is this quiet giant and not in terms of sales, but in terms of how ubiquitous it is in US shopping centers. So it has twenty eight hundred stores. Compare that to four hundred fifty stores for J. Crew or two hundred fifty stores for Brooks Brothers or eight hundred forty stores for JC Penny. It's just massive, and so all kinds of mall REITs have a lot of exposure to this company. Uh, it is the, the second largest tenant for Tanger Factory Outlet Centers, it's a top 10 tenant for Brookfield and Acadia, and it's Simon Properties, a huge mall operator. Only Gap and L Brands are larger tenants than Acena.
0: So Acena, yeah, I haven't heard about it until I read your column, Sarah, so full disclosure, so I learned a lot reading your column here, uh, and how big they are in the world of retailing. How are they overall? How's their balance sheet? How's their capital structure? Is there a real risk here for these malls from this big group here?
5: Yeah, so their balance sheet is not in great shape, and that's been true since before COVID. Uh, this is a company that took on a significant amount of debt in 2015 when it bought Ann Taylor and lost. Mm-hmm. And because of The the business has been so unhealthy since then, it just hasn't been able to make much progress in bringing down that debt. So that was a key factor here in it having to resort to bankruptcy. And it's just a company that's been really out of touch with consumer taste. It already, in the last couple of years, had to wind down its dress barn chain, which was another huge chain with hundreds and hundreds of locations, and it sold its Maurice's chain. Um, because, again, it just couldn't find a way to generate consistently strong, comparable sales growth at these concepts um, because it was having so many fashion misses.
1: Ann Taylor, Anne Taylor Loft, Lane Bryant, Lewin Gray, on and on and on. Will anybody miss these? Is there a moat at all that it was protecting? Or can somebody else just do the job of Anne Taylor et al.? Yeah, so I, certainly
5: in this time where we're all working from home in our sweatpants, I think Ann Taylor's uh, <laughs> customer that was you know mostly looking for office clothing um, that that might be a business that uh, you know there's not a lot of demand for for quite some time. But uh, it struggles with the Lane Bryant and Catherine's chains have been particularly baffling for me, and I do think there's opportunities for competitors to step in there. Those of those chains uh, catered to plus-size women, and that's a remarkably underserved portion of the U.S. apparel market. And so I think uh, if there's lots of closures there, uh, that's a really good opportunity for department stores, or specialty apparel, Target, to step in and serve that audience.
0: Sarah, with all the trouble with the bricks and mortar retail, which you cover uh, so well, what does it mean for the traditional American shopping mall?
5: I think it means it's in a lot of trouble. Um, You know, the, the store closures, when we look out over the next five years, I expect we'll see the most store closures in the clothing and accessories category. Uh, Some estimates have said we're going to see 24,000 store closures in that category by 2025. Compare that to only, say, 12,000 store closures in consumer electronics or 11,000 store closures in groceries. And as we all know, clothing is the heartbeat of the American mall, right? That's what um, most of the tenants are. Uh, That's what the store mix has been for quite some time. So as we continue to see struggles for clothing stores amid COVID, I think that really spells a lot of trouble for the American malls, which was in so much trouble already before this
1: crisis. I mean, you don't have to pay rent on Instagram, right? <laughs> the uh, aver- <laughs> advertising is probably a lot lower on Instagram, and, and I'm not even being funny. I mean, the amount of ads that I'm receiving for clothing and for, for discounts, obviously now, because clothing retailers are just not selling, is, due. I mean, it would make you not want to open Instagram these days, Sarah. What happens to these malls? I mean, have you heard... Of, of any sort of new idea that, the, that, that, that will make these malls work again? I mean, obviously, there'll be huge efforts to try and sanitize and, and so on. But, I mean, until after there's a vaccine, does anybody want to be in a mall? I don't think so. And
5: look, I think the, the strategy that malls had been resorting to before COVID was to bring in alternative tenants uh, like restaurants and gyms uh, because those are the things that were actually generating foot traffic. And I think those tenants are, are going to struggle even more uh, to draw foot traffic in COVID era, given, you know, uh, the health concerns related to heavy breathing and sweating in close proximity with other people at a gym, for example. So I think malls are in a really tough spot right now. I think, you know, the best they can hope for is to, you know, really enforce social distancing guidelines, uh, try to make it easy for stores to use their parking lots for curbside pickups, um, I guess really emerging as a popular way uh, to get product right now. And, uh, you know, they're going to kind of have to muddle through that way. It's a really difficult situation.
0: Yeah, sorry. And, Vani, and yesterday I drove into New York City for the first time since March, and I was just shocked by the wow. number of empty stores, uh, stores for rent. Um, just seems like in every single block there were multiple empty stores storefronts just in the, in the space of you know four months. It's just been devastating here in New York. I mean, so they've Sarah, even taken out yeah. their
1: inventory and, 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 and yeah. still are. They passed one the other day where there was inventory in it last week and there was none this week.
0: Yeah, it's, it's just extraordinary. So Sarah, my, my guess is this is just accelerating the demise of bricks and mortar and the rise of e-commerce.
5: Yes, exactly. A lot of these retailers are seeing unprecedented e-commerce growth. Uh, you know, Target said on an average day in April, uh, it was getting as many e-commerce orders as it gets on Cyber Monday, right? This is just completely... Um, Change the contours of their business. And so I will think, I do think we'll continue to see uh, stores trying to, or retailers trying to use those physical stores as fulfillment centers for online orders, at least in the meantime. But of course, that's not a practical solution over the long term, right? You don't need to be paying Fifth Avenue rent. Uh, to mail clothing to your shoppers. And so there's just going to have to be a dramatic rethinking of store portfolios as leases come up. Um, And I think that's going to take time,
1: but it's definitely going to happen. I did see that certain leases have been taken over and one that jumped out was Aritzia, that Spanish retailer. And I just wondered what retailers decide, I mean, how much money do you have, how much cash do you have to have on your books to decide to sort of renew a lease right now?
5: I'm not sure there's one magic number, but I think you just have to feel confident. Uh, that you are going to be able to weather this crisis. And I think you have to think about where you are in your store closure or opening journey, right? There are a lot of retailers who, you know, younger chains like a Bonobos, for example, um, that their store portfolio isn't littered with all these uh, you know, store locations they picked out in 1985 that yeah. don't make sense anymore, right? Um, so for them, uh, opening stores in a targeted way still makes sense right now. And they're likely yep. to be able to get cheap rents and take advantage of that. If you're Macy's, you probably got a lot of old stores uh, in your portfolio that don't make sense for this environment, and you're certainly not looking to lease anymore right now.
0: Hey, Sarah, thanks so much for joining us once again. We always appreciate your thoughts on uh, the retail space. Sarah Hulzak retail columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. You can read all her work and that of Bloomberg Opinion, Bloomberg.com, slash opinion, or go on the terminal.